Welcome back to Arbitrary and Capricious, the podcast of the Seaboyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm the Center's Director, Adam White. On February 6, 2020, the Center hosted a conference titled Bureaucracy and Presidential Administration, where experts discussed issues of expertise and accountability in constitutional administration. As the title suggests, the conference was inspired in part by two famous studies of modern administration, James Q. Wilson's book, Bureaucracy, and Elena Kagan's article, Presidential Administration. As always, the panel discussions centered around new papers, which are available on our website, and the videos of those discussions are also on our website. We're now releasing the audio recordings in this podcast. And in this episode, we have the conference's third panel, titled The Tools of Administrative Management. Although, as you'll see in the discussion, there's a little bit of joking about how we couldn't have possibly picked a more boring title for the panel discussion. I promise it's more interesting than that. In this discussion, we had uh, two new papers, one by Professor Andrew Rudlovich of Bowdoin College. His paper was titled Central Clearance as Presidential Management, focused on the Office of Management and Budget's role in clearing executive orders. And the second paper was titled Regulating Agencies, Using Regulatory Instruments as a Pathway to Improve Benefit Cost Analysis. This paper was co-authored by a trio, uh, Christopher Kerrigan, a professor at the George Washington University's Trachtenberg School for Public Policy, Mark Fabrizio, a policy analyst at the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, and Stuart Shapiro, Associate Dean of Faculty, at the Bluestein School of Planning and Public Policy at Rutgers University. Uh, professors Kerrigan and Rudelvich pre presented their papers. And we had comments from Lisa Heinzerling, the Justice William Brennan Professor of Law at Georgetown University's Law Center, and Susan Dudley, former OIRA Administrator, now Director of the George Washington University's Regulatory Studies Center. The discussion was moderated by Philip Wallach, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. I hope you enjoy the discussion. We have a great panel here today to, as Adam said, sort of dig into some of the more uh, specific tools of how presidents uh, attempt to over the over the bureaucracy, over the administrative state. Um, and so I will follow the practice of just introducing uh, each of our distinguished panelists before they speak. So we're going to start with Professor Andrew Rudolevich, uh, who is the Thomas Brackett Reed Professor of Government at Bowdoin College, and whose excellent paper is entitled uh, Central Clearance as Presidential Management. So take it away. Great, well thank you, and thanks to Phil, thanks to Adam certainly for inviting me, uh, giving me the chance to speak to you. I think what I'm gonna talk about does fit into some of the themes that have been uh, <clears throat> already put forth with regards, for example, to professionalism. So, uh, framed in the case of the Office of Management Budget, conveniently placed behind me, uh, the red building, sort of over my, your, your right, uh, is of course where most of the careerists in OMB uh, spend their days and often their nights and weekends as well. Uh, so I want to start actually though in 1919, uh, when Franklin Roosevelt, hot young thing in the Democratic Party today, uh, he of course would be the uh, 1920 vice presidential nominee for the party, uh, but in 1919, he was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and he's testifying before a House Budget Committee uh, on the machinery needed by the federal government. He argued that federal departments ought to have a central inspection force, he said, 
And the same principle applies in the case of the next higher step, president, who needed machinery, which he has not got at the present time. Uh, he ought to have someone who could come into my department at any time to see how I am running it, as well as some means of overseeing legislative and spending proposals sent by the departments to Congress. No president of the United States as an individual FDR told the committee has time to coordinate the hundreds of items of the different departments. Uh, a little bit later in 1946, Harold Smith, uh, director of the Bureau of the Budget, put the same case in different terms, arguing that to help the president work out the program of the government, it's absolutely necessary to have a separate staff operating in a detached, objective atmosphere to supply him with information, to check all information that comes in. Uh, cabinet officers' judgments, nor their facts, can be altogether trusted, not because they are in any way dishonest men, but because their facts and their judgments are colored by personal ambitions and their operating experience in only a segment of the government. Uh, fast forwarding somewhat, those of you familiar with the political science literature on presidential management might have found yourself surprised to realize there's very little discussion of the plurality of the executive branch. Uh, for often good reasons of analytic assumption, uh, political scientists studying the presidency have often assumed that there is no collective action cost imposed on presidential action. Effectively, that there's no friction between a presidential uh, edict of some sort, a directive, and the carrying out of that order. Uh, my own background is in a slightly different tradition of the public administration slash political science literature on the role of the executive branch and the president's role therein. <clears throat> We've mentioned the name James Wilson a few times. Uh, we might also note Graham Allison, essence of decision back in the late 1960s uh, uh, was very prominent in this field. Mort Halperin, Francis Rorth. Uh, more recently though, uh, political scientists have come back around to this uh, people like Dave Lewis, Dan Carpenter, Ann O'Connell, uh, her co-author George Krause, um, and organizational economics uh, are beginning to be utilized in thinking about how uh, the principal agent problem that presidents have with regards to the wider bureaucracy might be conceived. Uh, Oliver Williamson is particularly useful here in his notion of what he calls a governance structure. I'm going to kind of talk about uh, one of those governance structures. Uh, these are, for Williamson, internal organizations that can, quote, attenuate incentives to exploit information impactedness opportunistically. There's a whole bunch of economics jargon packed into a half a sentence. But uh, we're thinking about the basic import. Presidents don't have the information they need, as Harold Smith put it in 1946. How can they get it? Well, my paper focuses on one mechanism for that, which is the central clearance processes, in the plural, run by mostly the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, and so uh, a lot of the uh, evidence in the paper, the stories that are there, uh, are from the archives, uh, mostly out in College Park, Maryland, uh, in the uh, record group 51, the exact, of the Office of Management and Budget. And I would refer you to the paper. I won't have time to go through those, those stories in detail. Uh, the only reason that I'm sorry not to have PowerPoint, because after all, PowerPoint does corrupt absolutely, uh, but uh, is, would be to be able to show you some of the documents, because that does enrich, I think, uh, the way in which we understand the story. Um, so again, central clearance as governance structure, 
And actually, to quote John Elliott, who's already made uh, several appearances today, writing in 1994, he noted that OMB review is like God. If it did not exist, we would need to invent it. Now, he was talking specifically about regulatory review, but I want to broaden that out because, in fact, um, FDR, in a sense, mostly did invent this review. Uh, it didn't come out of whole cloth, of course. Uh, the Bureau of the Budget is created in 1921, largely as a mechanism for providing the best principles of scientific management to the president at that time, uh, trying to rationalize the federal budget. Of course, he's in deficit after World War I, uh, and again, to provide the kind of administrative machinery uh, that presidents were thought to need uh, in the mode of running the government like a business. Um, Charles Dawes, uh, who's the first budget director, really takes hold of the idea that the Budget Bureau is uh, about efficiency, about what will become known as neutral competence, or what Jonathan Rauch might call professionalism in a different context. Uh, he, in fact, argues that if uh, Congress passed a law uh, arguing that, uh, or stating that trash ought to be piled up on the White House steps, then the job of the Budget Bureau would be to dictate exactly how the most trash could be piled up at the least cost. Um, he really did see the Bureau as a, again, an efficiency mechanism. Uh, and to that end, he actually issued the first budget circular uh, requiring that legislation, proposed legislation, be sent from the departments to the Budget Bureau. This is 1921. Uh, already we were up to uh, budget circular number 49. But it's really with FDR uh, in the early 1930s, um, trying to deal with the Depression, he creates something called the National Emergency Council. Uh, as that fades away, he begins to put more and more faith in the Budget Bureau in order to serve, again, as the clearinghouse, the machinery that he had talked about 15 years before, uh, before becoming president. And, of course, ultimately, uh, Executive Order 8248 in 1939 serves as the creation of the Executive Office of the President. The Budget Bureau is moved from the Treasury Department, where it had resided to that point, into the Executive Office of the President, and indeed, Clearance of legislation and of executive orders is built into the very uh, bones of the then Bureau of the Budget, of course, later OMB, uh, as part of that executive order. Uh, but again, this is building on practices that were already uh, in their nascent form uh, as early as 1933. In fact, the uh, president had ordered that executive orders move their way through a clearance process uh, centered in OMB uh, before moving to the Justice Department for a form and legality check. I'm going to talk very, very quickly just to note that legislative clearance is one of the parts. Again, executive order clearance, and then later, uh, a later addition, uh, regulatory review. Uh, again, legislative clearance is uh, centered in the legislative reference division. Uh, it involves uh, clearance of the president's legislative program, uh, testimony, by agency and department heads uh, before Congress, uh, later uh, grew to involve uh, statements of administrative policy and positions, uh, and enrolled bills. So at every stage of the legislative process, there is a chance for OMB to get the advice of other parts of government. And this is one of the most important parts of the process. It'll, as Richard Neustadt wrote, it protects presidents from the agencies, but it also uh, protects agencies from each other. And one of the reasons it's become institutionalized is the fact that agencies actually benefit from knowing what their peers are up to, and they want to find out. It allows for a peer review, 
uh, centralized in the EOP, but also uh, a way of gaining information if you are an agency head about what, again, your colleagues, sometimes rivals are up to. And indeed, uh, as executive orders became more formalized in Executive Order 11030 in 1962 under President Kennedy, uh, the rationale given by the Budget Bureau to the president for shifting the order, strengthening centralized clearance, was, quote, greater protection to the president to find out more about what was going on uh, so that agencies wouldn't do an end run around presidential preferences. Uh, with these in place, of course, uh, the thing we talk about most probably in scholarship is regulatory review. This is added uh, in stages, I would say. Uh, I've written uh, a long uh, paper about uh, the foundations of regulatory review going back to the Nixon administration, even before. Of course, the big bang is in 1981 with Executive Order 12291, and Gordon Gray, if he's here, helped to write that order. Um, and so may have some comments on it. I will note that uh, uh, this was, unlike the Carter administration, not something done in great deliberation with the agencies. There's a lot of deliberation in the EOP, but not with the agencies. Uh, indeed, uh, it was sent out for comment to the agencies on a Friday afternoon, about 5 o'clock. Uh, Monday was the deadline for comment. Monday was President's Day, by the way. Uh, the agencies scrambled to find somebody to comment on the executive order. They showed up at the White House on Tuesday morning. Uh, expecting to critique the order, only to find it had already been signed by the president. Uh, and there are some other things we can move into, thinking about the uh, uh, role of this order with regards to independent agencies. Um, that's something the presidents have had, I should say, largely backed away from. Uh, not so much because they didn't believe that they had the legal authority to require independent agencies to take part, but rather that they thought it would upset Congress much. After all, the legislative clearance and executive orders are uh, effectively grounded in the president's constitutional functions. Regulatory review is a little trickier in that uh, normally the power to promulgate regulations is vested in the departments by statute, not in the president. So there's some maneuvering that needs to be done. We've seen a little bit of that recently in the Trump administration, uh, where as a way of trying to designate under the Congressional Review Act what a significant rule-making effort is, uh, they have required independent agencies to submit their perhaps significant rules and guidance to them. Um, so just briefly then, central clearance is an institution uh, in which recurring transactions between the president and the agencies can be embedded, they can be mediated. Uh, again, this notion of protection, uh, both to the president and to the agencies is critical. It's visible often in its absence, right? It's one of those things you might not notice working well when it's happening, uh, but certainly uh, you have archival examples of it failing. Uh, of course, even uh, more salient in recent years was the first uh, travel ban announced by President Trump in early 2017, which required, uh, which received really no vetting from professionals in the government. And uh, it's only the third iteration of that ban, of course, that's upheld uh, by the Supreme Court later. Uh, Civil service involvement, I think, is crucial. Uh, the Legislative Reference Division, General Counsel's Office, desk officers at OIRA. Uh, again, the idea of providing analysis uh, that is then, of course, vetted through political superiors, uh, whether that's uh, White House counsels or CADs and OMB. Um, I would note uh, you know, that if analysis becomes another 
partisan avenue, uh, another dimension of partisan warfare, uh, this is threatening, right? And uh, it's not new for presidents to have to decide how much good government they want to buy. Uh, Boyd and Gray in his comments noted that the uh, OIRA in particular is far, uh, has a far smaller staff than it did in 1981, about half, I believe. Uh, and that's true generally at OMB, which has gained many functions over time, but basically no staff. The staff size total has remained pretty much the same since the 1940s uh, with some small ups and downs. So uh, I guess this is a uh, sort of circling around complete indeed for the maintenance of neutral competence. Uh, presidents have found over time that investing in this is good not only for the institution of the presidency, but in fact, for whoever happens to be president at the time. Next up. All right. Thank you, Andy. Um, we'll now go to the other author of our paper we have on the panel. That's Professor Christopher Kerrigan, who is the co-director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center uh, and an associate professor of public policy and administration at the Trachtenberg School of Public Policy at GW. Um, so whereas Professor Rudolevich's paper gives sort of a history of central clearance as a method of presidential management, um, uh, the Kerrigan, Fabrizio, and Shapiro paper sort of zooms in on one aspect of that process and asks how and when it can be most effective. So I think there's some good overlap here. And uh, take it away, Chris. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, so again, this paper is um, joint with uh, Mark Fabrizio from uh, GW and uh, Stuart Shapiro, who wishes he could be here but couldn't be here today from Rutgers University. And basically, uh, this paper builds off the observation, at least our observation, that in the regulatory politics literature, there's basically two sub-literatures. One investigates uh, procedural controls, which sometimes is called deinstitutionalism, where political principles attempt to use procedural controls to restrain regulatory agencies' actions. So that's one literature. And the second literature is what I refer to as regulatory instruments, sometimes called new governance. Uh, which is agencies employ various regulatory instruments, a variety of different regulatory instruments, to try to influence the decisions of firms or other regulated entities. Um, what we've observed, and this has been, I've been thinking about this for several years, actually, is that although you have many of the same authors in both and talking about both aspects, rarely do the connections between them kind of uh, get investigated more deeply. So. Uh, we decided with this paper to actually try out this idea instead of just talking about it. Uh, so that's this is what the uh, effort here is supposed to do, and, and you can tell me if it worked or not. Um, but basically, there, there are two parallel principal agent problems. So in order to, uh, you know, I guess, pull a smaller piece of the larger potential project, we focus on one procedural control, and that is benefit-cost analysis, a mandate that at least for significant rules that uh, agencies conduct benefit cost analysis to support uh, their rules. And the question is, what can the uh, literature on regulatory instruments tell us about uh, the value of benefit cost analysis in the regulatory process, the value of it from the uh, two perspectives, one being uh, to make better rules and the second being to make agencies or encourage agencies to be more accountable. Um, 
and kind of wading through the literature, we have this systematic process that we go through to uh, kind of investigate each one of these literatures. But we, we identify basically three pathways that benefit cost analysis is supposed to affect the outcome of rules. One is what we call as a decision rule uh, to suggest whether or not a rule should be promulgated. So there's a potential to use it in that, in that way. Uh, a pathway to uh, transparency, so a way of requiring agencies to clearly identify a rule's effects so the affected groups and concerned parties can uh, monitor and engage in the process. And then the third avenue that uh, scholars have kind of identified that benefit-cost analysis can affect um, resulting regulations is as a planning tool as a, um, a method to force agencies to take a systematic approach to promulgating rules and to setting regulatory priorities among lots of things they could do. And what we found when we thought about this, and you know, all of us have also written in this kind of regulatory instruments literature, is that these pathways have parallels to three regulatory approaches. Uh, one being performance standards, uh, another being information disclosure requirements, and the third being something called management-based regulation. I'll describe each one of them. So performance standards uh, is when a regulator sets an outcome that the regulated uh, firms or other entities have to attain without prescribing the means by which they need to attain it. So, you know, one prominent example would be CAFE standards, for example, where uh, automakers are required to ensure their vehicle fleets collectively meet some level of fuel efficiency, but doesn't necessarily tell them how they're supposed to achieve that. Um, we think that this uh, performance standard idea mirrors uh, BCA in the, in the sense of it being potentially a decision rule by offering a benchmark to determine whether or not to move forward with a rule. Does the rules benefit uh, does the rule's benefits justify its cost, according to uh, 12866? And it doesn't, it also has similarities in the sense that it doesn't prescribe specific actions that the regulator must take. So it leaves open that they can use a benefit cost analysis to evaluate a wide variety of approaches, perhaps, uh, and identify the one that uh, kind of gets the, to the end goal. So that's one uh, kind of uh, parallel. A second one is, uh, information disclosure uh, requirements. So this is just simply the mandate that uh, firms uh, provide information about their products, which hopefully, if it works well, encourages third parties to monitor the behavior uh, of the regulated entity and perhaps um, attempt to intervene to get them to kind of change their uh, approach. Okay. So, um, you know, one example of this would be EPA's uh, toxic release inventory, which requires firms above a certain size to make uh, environmental, uh, make public environmental discharges. So uh, we think, you know, if you think about it, uh, the transparency path of BCA kind of mirrors this information disclosure um, by providing effects about the, uh, or providing information about the likely effects of a rule, thereby ensuring that those who would be impacted uh, understand the implications. And then there's this final pathway, which is kind of the management-based regulation or the planning uh, tool. So management-based regulation is another regulatory instrument that forces a form or at the mandate is really that the firm plan, plan around the hazards that um, 
uh, might occur in their regulated process to uh, avoid uh, harm or achieve program goals without necessarily specifying the outputs. And it may not even uh, mandate that the firm actually implement, uh, implement that, act that actual plan. Uh, what it does is, of course, assigns planning to the firms, which is presumably the party that has more information about its operations relative to the regulations. Um, so as I kind of suggested, so one uh, example of this would be USDA's uh, hazard analysis and critical control point um, program, which requires uh, firms to evaluate and monitor and control potential dangers in food um, in food planning. So this uh, clearly then obviously mirrors the third way we think uh, that benefit cost analysis can affect uh, rules and quality of rules and accountability of rules. Uh, by uh, through this kind of planning pathway by encouraging systematic planning, both with respect to considering various approaches and prioritizing regulatory needs, and of course shifting um, responsibility to the agency, which again is the party with the most information in this case. Okay, so I mean, you know, this is great that we can make these linkages, but what does it give us? So that's the big question, right? And I think if we take this approach, we can learn uh, two different things. Uh, one is that um, as a tool, benefit cost analysis and through our analysis is suggestive that management-based, the management-based pathway seems to offer the most promise. So we talk a little bit about the, uh, again, using the literature, uh, some of which we've contributed to, uh, when is a performance standard uh, most likely to work? When is an information disclosure most likely to work? So you know, with performance standards, the standard has to be clear, the regulator has to determine whether the regulated entity met the standard. Within the information disclosure, the information needs to be clear. The third parties need to care enough to apply pressure if, um, if that's the goal. And we think if you, you think about the conditions in which benefit cost analysis is normally performed, uh, it doesn't normally meet these criteria. So for example, uh, Ben, you know, benefits need to justify costs. It's not a very clear metric for kind of using it as a performance standard. And moreover, uh, as a general principle, Congress and courts are typically not capable of necessarily determining the extent to which the standard is met, being able to determine or wade into the actual analysis done by the agency to support the rulemaking. Um, moreover, these, uh, Analyses, as I've written in, uh, in other places, are not easy for even sophisticated users to understand. And sometimes agencies don't even necessarily have an incentive to make them uh, transparent to uh, a potential um, critic uh, in the sense of uh, inviting scrutiny um, does not make them uh, uh, positioned well, potentially in judicial review. And then we go on to argue, but in contrast, management-based regulation, the planning side uh, of this seems to fit the circumstances in which uh, management-based regulation works well downstream. So um, thinking about uh, management-based regulation is typically applied when the firms are heterogeneous or the processes are heterogeneous, where outputs are difficult to monitor, uh, where agencies are capable of evaluating plans and uh, firms are committed to planning. And it seems to, seems to us that these are the conditions under which benefit cost analysis is applied among agencies. Uh, agencies are, you know, are quite different, heterogeneous outputs. Um, the, you know, the outputs are, are sometimes difficult to um, uh, 
understand what they are, the different alternatives and that sort of thing. And then, you know, relative to scrutinizing a particular benefit cost analysis and understanding the economic econometric analysis, monitoring an agency for a process uh, tends to be uh, much easier. So we think, you know, that's one kind of takeaway. As a tool, benefit cost analysis is likely to have the greatest impact through its efforts to force plan, uh, force agencies to plan systematically. And the second, I think, perhaps is probably the more valuable of the two insights, and that is that the pathways through which benefit cost analysis works to affect regulations can actually be mutually exclusive. So again, using the analogy to the regulatory instruments literature, to operate as a performance standard, uh, benefit cost analysis must accurately account for the benefits and costs, but to work as an information disclosure device, it must be understandable to third parties. And sometimes those two things could be in conflict with each other, direct conflict with each other. A similar example would be performance standards are typically better in homogeneous environments, whereas management-based regulation is applied in heterogeneous environments, again, uh, suggesting some conflict. So to kind of conclude, I think I'm uh, about out of time, uh, conclude with two thoughts. First, the discussions of benefit-cost analysis effectiveness, at least in the literature and kind of general discussions, often focus on the extent to which its application allows it to operate as a performance standard, a metric to define whether or not we should proceed with a particular rule. And I think this paper, if it does anything, uh, suggests that this emphasis might be misguided, that um, the pathway by which benefit-cost analysis is most likely to encourage uh, firms to form better, or excuse me, agencies to form better and more responsive rules is through that systematic planning piece. And then the second thing is, uh, again, as I said, instances in which uh, benefit-cost analysis uh, can simultaneously function as a decision-making criteria, a vehicle to encourage transparency and a planning tool is likely limited. Uh, and this, you know, in, in terms of thinking about reforms to the benefit-cost analysis um, uh, procedure, uh, we need to kind of think about the specific context in which benefit-cost analysis is being applied. And then secondly, real, realizing, being more sensible and realizing that it cannot be expected to achieve all or even most of its goals in a particular um, situation. I'll stop there. All right. Thanks, Chris. Um, we'll now turn to our two commentators. Uh, first, we'll go to uh, Susan Dudley, who has worn many different professional hats of relevance here. Um, she is Distinguished Professor of Practice at the Trachtenberg School uh, at George Washington University. She's the director of the George Washington University Regulatory Studies Center, which just celebrated its 10th birthday with an excellent event last week. Um, just as important for this panel, she served as the uh, appointed administrator of OIRA in the Bush administration. Uh, and she is a past president of the Society for Benefit Cost Analysis. Don't, mm -hmm. don't get those two words. Turned around, they'll, they'll get you. <laughs> so, turn it over thank to Susan. You. Thank you, Philip. Um, and I also want to thank add my thanks to Adam for convening the first of all for getting the stimulating research, so encouraging the stimulating research, and then convening these discussions that are um, the conversations that are so great. Um, I'm not sure that the title he chose for this panel. I mean, 
I'm surprised anybody came back from lunch. <laughs> the tools of administrative management, when in fact, I highly recommend the papers because they're interesting and fun to read. Um, so I'll start with Andy's. Um, it, it's a very interesting history of these different clearing clearance mechanisms. And he has lots of interesting details about what's going on in these inside procedures. He says he's he spent a lot of time in College Park at Record Group 51. Um, we don't have to do that now because you can read his paper and there are lots of fun little anecdotes. Like there was one that I liked about the development of President Clinton's um, children's health executive order and how long that took and all the different parts of the government that um, pulled and tugged in different directions before that was finally published. So there's a lot of fun stuff in there, like the story he told us about Executive Order 12291, uh, that by the time people saw it, it was a state of complete. So the difference in how those things work is, is really pretty fun. Um, so he draws parallels between the clearance process and the legislative clearance, um, the executive order clearance and regulatory clearance. And I, I, having been at OMB on the career staff and then um, as a, a political appointee, um, I often talk about the the role when I explain to people why is it that the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs reviews regulations. I say it's, it's part of the OMB, and OMB does all that. And I often will add procurement, IT, um, the budget, um, and part of what you mentioned is it's that OMB. So they're part of the executive office White House complex, but they've got that cadre of career civil servants that we've talked so much about earlier today. Um, so whenever I do it, it's much more simplistic than Andy's, so I highly recommend it. Um, you do separate from these three that you talked about, the budget issue that you say is inherently different. And I think that's absolutely right, but I also think there's a real difference between the three that you talk about. So legislative review really is almost a pure clearance function. So it is um, the legislative review division gets testimonies, say, from the Department of Secretary of the Department of Labor, sends it out to other people in the White House, other people in the executive branch, gets the feedback, turns that around, and um, hands it back. Um, regulatory review, I, I often say, oh, why we wear several hats? And that's one of the hats that they wear is doing that clearance, um, doing that clearance across agencies. When a regulation comes in, what other agencies might have an interest in this and getting their feedback. But the second one is that analytical evaluation and expertise that they bring. Um, I may butcher this, but I think President Obama called it a dispassionate and analytical second. So they do bring that expertise. Um, as well as the coordinating and convening. Um, and then they're, as you've mentioned, they're part of the White House. Um, I think the review of executive orders, in my experience, is somewhere in the middle. OMB's Office of General Counsel and the White House Counsel are very involved in those ex executive orders. So there is that um, adding their expertise, but they also are doing that clearance function. Um, one of the things that you mentioned, and I hear this a lot, that centralized review, and this is also the difference, um, that centralized review has the value of the career civil service, but they've also, it's part of the White House, and um, pardon the pun, but White House politics will trump 
the, the career um, or the, the analytical stuff. I think that's a little too simplistic, this notion that politics always trumps. And, and, and this is something that's hard to observe on an empirical basis from the outside. But in, in my experience, the analysis always informs the politics. In the end, if the White House says, I hear you, I understand that's what the analysis says, but I still need to do this for political reasons, yes, that does trump. But I think often in ways that are unseen, the, the analysis can actually inform. Um, and that White House officials really appreciate a clear exposition of the alternatives and the consequences, intended and unintended, even if it's only to know where they might get sued later. So just, um, I think that's important. So very much enjoyed that paper, recommend it. Um, so, my colleagues, Chris Harrigan, Mark Fabrizio, and Stuart Shapiro also have a really interesting paper, as you've heard, um, looking at the parallels in the principal agent problem and what we can learn from regulatory instruments that govern private behavior. So that brings some interesting insight. Um, so um, I want to well, just quickly, um, benefit cost analysis, is it more like a performance standard, an information disclosure standard? or a management-based standard. And I think they go nicely through those. Um, one thing I want to challenge you on, though, is who is the principal and who is the agent in each of these? Um, is the regulator a really the principal for whom the private um, company is the agent? Because I think now private firms, if you're making a product, your principal is your customer or your stockholders and your employees. So I think it, it gets complicated. Um, so Brian Mannix, who I sort of know, um, he has an article from a year or two ago. Brian's my husband. So. <laughs> um, um, and it, I'll quote from him more than once in my comments here. Um, Agency officials are not principals. They wield whatever power they have as agents of the people. And I think that's one of the reasons that we do benefit cost regulatory impact analysis. They ought to be able to demonstrate that their discretionary, discretionary official actions serve the public interest, promote the general welfare, or otherwise advance the common good. Um, and then similarly, when it um, comes to the regions, you talk, it's the White House and Congress that you envision as the principal and the um, regulatory agencies are the, the agents. Um, Perhaps, but I also think that regulatory agencies ultimate principle is the public. So it's something we can talk about more, how that works. Um, the thinking about benefit cost analysis as a performance standard, I too find it hard to, kind of hard to see it as a performance standard. Um, agencies are told to evaluate options and select the one that maximizes net benefits. But that's not something that can be object objectively observed and measured. So it isn't achieve this outcome and without us telling you how to get there. Um, information disclosure, I think, may be a little bit closer, but information disclosure works so well in, as a regulatory tool because it, it regulate, regulated parties allows the principals who are the individuals in the private transaction. So the consumers who are about to buy a product Information disclosure has that nutrition label on it, so you know what is in that. That that allows the real principal to be able to make an informed decision. 
that um, serves their needs. Um, whereas the disclosure, the benefit cost analysis and these regulatory impact analysis that are way too long these days, as Chris has written um, eloquently about, um, that is, it's the purpose of that is to support a collective decision. So I think that allows third parties like OIRA, public commenters, et cetera, to understand and challenge how the decision was made, but it's a fundamentally different form or pathway to improving accountability. Um, so I end up agreeing with you fully that, and I'll quote from you, our research illustrates that emulating management-based regulation is the most likely pathway for BCA success as a tool to improve regulation. Um, and I'll quote from one Brian Mannix again. The fact that BCA is used to make collective decisions is what distinguishes it from many similar methodologies such as discounted cash flow analysis that are used by private individuals or businesses. BCA purports to evaluate a decision from the perspective of multiple affected parties whose views and interests are not aligned. So I think at the management level that's useful. But then it didn't challenge me. Okay, so if regulatory impact analysis is really not a performance tool and it's not an information disclosure, are there tools that regulators that we that accountability tools, getting back to our lunch and previous talks, um, that might be more akin to those? And I think when for performance standards, um, a regulator's budget, regulatory budget, dare I say it, is more like a performance standard. So that's where um, the Congress might say, we are passing this Clean Air Act that requires, we want, these, we want these outcomes. Regulators go forth and write regulations that achieve those outcomes within um, this budget. So I, I see that maybe being more like a performance regulation. Um, on the information disclosure, this relates to some of your work. Um, what if agencies were required to share their um, their risk analysis underlying the regulatory impact analysis, benefit cost analysis, but provide that information. So the agencies that have that expertise provide that information, but then allow states, um, individuals, et cetera, to make private decisions based on the information that we now have. This is what um, exposure to this particular product. But again, highly recommend great resources. Okay, thanks, Susan. Uh, we'll now turn to our final panelist, Professor Lisa Heinzerling, who is the Justice William J. Brennan, Jr. Professor of Law at Georgetown University Law Center, um, and also very relevant for this panel, uh, the co-author of the book, Priceless, Unknowing the Price of Everything and the Value of Nothing, is a very powerful critique of the use of cost-benefit analysis in health, safety, and environmental policy. So I'll turn it over to you. Thanks. <clears throat> I want to say a wor few words about each of these great papers. I want to start by highlighting just one piece of the history uh, that's laid out in Andy's paper and describe its implications for the accountability in the process of White House review. Andy recounts in one place in the paper how uh, OIRA quietly dropped from the 
Clinton-era executive order process, Brightly dropped an important feature of that executive order on the review of agency rules. And this was the requirement that after publication of an agency action, the agency identify for the public those changes in the regulatory action that were made at the suggestion or recommendation of OIRA. And he quotes a memo from then OIRA head Sally Katzen to President Clinton offering her view that such changes were the product of collegial discussions and that the agencies themselves might worry that they would lose faith, faith if OIRA's influence on their work was disclosed to the public. Oh, first of all, based on my experience at EPA during the first two years of the Obama administration, I can say that changes made during the process of OIRA review are not always the product of collegial discussions. <laughs> and that's especially true if by collegial discussions, Sally meant that everyone at the end of the day agreed with the changes made. More important to me, removing the requirement of disclosing which changes were made at a wire's insistence means we don't know whether the White House or the agency wanted those changes. We can't, in other words, know whom to hold accountable for the changes that are made during the process of review. And this seems especially important to me in light of the quiet abandonment of another requirement set forth in the Clinton era executive order, which of course still is in force today. And that is the requirement that OIRA maintain a publicly available log, which reveals among other things, whether, when, and by whom presidential consideration was requested. To me, abandonment of these two explicit promises of transparency means we often do not know who demanded changes, sometimes centrally important changes in regulatory action or why. This greatly reduces, in my view, the accountability that the supposed premise of centralized review. The president is held to account for changes in regulatory action only if he chooses to claim credit for the changes. He's accountable only, in other words, only when he chooses to be accountable. That's not really accountability in my view. After the president or the White House or OIRA or in Kat Sunstein's phrase, somebody who matters has played a role in influencing the progress of an agency action through White House review, the agency then is left with a hard job, and that is to try to explain to the public how its action comports with applicable law and the evidence before it. Often the real reasons for the changes, the changes made during the process of White House review, actually don't comport with the underlying law or with the evidence in front of the agency. Often the reasons the agency gives for making the ultimate decision are not its real reasons. If the changes are due, for example, to the real results of the cost-benefit analysis, the agency can't actually say this if the law doesn't allow cost-benefit analysis. If the changes are due to presidential politics, you can't say this alone. You need to give the stated reasons and tie them to the underlying facts under current principles of administrative law. So what we get from White House review is this, 
an agency action whose author we can't identify unless, she, unless he chooses to reveal himself based on reasons that may violate the applicable law and may have nothing to do with the facts before the agency. And then this is all topped off with a lie, to be frank. And that lie is, these are our real reasons for taking this action. The agency has to say, these are the reasons why we took this action, even though those may not be the real reasons, and the real reasons may be illegal reasons. So it's not clear to me yet what the full implications of last term's Supreme Court opinion in the census case are, in which the court held that the agency's explanation, the Secretary of Commerce's explanation for adding a citizenship question to the census was contrived. Not clear what the full implications are, but I think we do know this. An agency lying about its real reasons for a decision can spell legal trouble for an agency action and legal trouble that really gets at the heart of administrative law. Here's Chief Justice Roberts in the census opinion on the agency's um, uh, reason giving. The reasoned explanation requirement of administrative law is meant to ensure that agencies offer genuine justifications for important decisions, reasons that can be scrutinized by courts and the interested public. Accepting contrived reasons would defeat the purpose of the enterprise. I think the process of reason giving that's required by basic principles of administrative law also relates to Chris's uh, paper. Chris and his co-authors suggest that cost-benefit analysis can be viewed as a form of management-based regulation, which in their words incentivizes agencies to form regulations in systematic ways. And my response to this claim is that we already have a way, a tool for incentivizing agencies to form regulations in systematic ways. It's called administrative law. Administrative law is one where regulations are developed by proposing an action, accepting public comments from all comers, responding to comments, and at the end of the day, explaining the choice the agency makes in reasoned terms that actually makes sense to reviewing courts. So I don't think we need cost-benefit analysis for this purpose. We have administrative law. And in fact, and I know many of you are gonna hate this. In fact, I think White House uh, cost-benefit analysis coupled with the process of White House review, if anything, derails the census's process of regulatory development. The cost-benefit criterion, as I've suggested, creates a discrepancy in many cases between the underlying law and the evaluative criterion employed by the agency. Cost-benefit analysis as superintended by OIRA also discourages consideration of all possible alternatives by agencies. This may not be obvious, but it is true based on my experience um, at an agency and hearing about others' experiences. That is, agency personnel do not even think of regulatory interventions that won't get past a wire. They limit their thinking and artificially truncate the set of uh, <laughs> options they might refer to or, or use because they're afraid that a wire will overrule them. The political process, quite apart from the cost-benefit process, the political process in the White House for reviewing rules can be chaotic and uncertain that can change by the day, depending on politics wholly removed from the regulatory action at hand. An agency finds it's hard 
to plan sensibly in that environment. And indeed, I'll just say nothing about the cost benefit criterion actually requires systematic planning by the agency across regulations. We have a regulatory planning process, for example, that is seldom used in any kind of robust way for managing regulatory developments across the agency. In addition, I would say that the semi-private consultations with private parties that occur during White House review mean that there is a shadow comment period involving the privileged few, those in the know and with the resources to attend OI review, so that in fact even the public comment process isn't the real public comment process. And that shadow process can upend the usual orderly development of regulatory actions. So for all these reasons, I, I just don't think that if what we're after is a tool for systematizing the benefit of a regulatory action, I think we have administrative law for that purpose. If we're, we're, what we're aimed at is planning across rules, across an agency for the future, again, I don't think that this quite chaotic and unpredictable process within the White House does that for us either. All right, the gauntlet is down. Yes, <laughs> Uh, I would like to give each of the authors uh, and possibly Susan a chance to, to, to respond to what we've heard so far. Uh, so uh, I'll just go in the order you spoke before and hopefully keep things brief so we have a chance to move to some uh, more free-flowing discussion. And, um, sure. So thank you uh, <clears throat> to both discussants for some very useful comments. Um, just very quickly, I guess uh, I would uh, not really dispute any of uh, Susan's comments, except maybe to push back very gently on the idea that the legislative reference doesn't do any vetting of its own accord. Uh, certainly it draws on the, uh, what are now called the RMOs, uh, the subject matter divisions within OMB, uh, to try to get a sense of what um, the, you know, sort of the substantive value of a particular program is. And of course, they're trying to coordinate uh, across different departmental proposals over time. Uh, in a way that fulfills what the president's program is, however that's been determined. Um, so I think they do, you see evidence certainly of, you know, of sort of uh, panic deadline driven clearance, but you also see uh, certainly at times evidence of legislative review leading to changes, uh, certainly in legislative substance, but also in testimony. Uh, the times that hits the headlines is usually when um, an agency head complains that the science is being distorted by the demands of the White House, actually kind of getting to Lisa's point in a different context, uh, but that, you know, they were going to say what was true, but now OMB is forcing them to say what is false. Um, and those kinds of conflicts, of course, are very newsworthy, fun to cover. Um, the uh, other point I was going to make just had to do with the, um, um, well, for executive orders, actually, also you see uh, quite a lot of uh, changes happening. In fact, even two presidentially proposed orders uh, as they go through the vetting process. Uh, one of my favorite archival finds is a note by Jimmy Carter uh, to uh, his White House counsel saying, make an order, make it strict. Uh, and if you follow through the archival process, it never is issued. The OMB convinces him, in fact, uh, that it is not a, a useful or productive or, in fact, possible order to issue. Um, so there can be independent pushback in that sense. Uh, 
but yeah, I would certainly agree that the uh, uh, you know the review that goes through uh, is ultimately going to be subject to uh, political discussion. I I like the idea of the analysis informing the politics, and I'm glad to hear that happens uh, more regularly than not. Uh, but I and I think that sounds right. Um, you do see examples, of course, where um, where that's overridden. And I guess all I really meant to say was that in those extreme cases, uh, you know, if the president wants to do it, it can be done. Oh, you're um, right. Yeah. Um, funny. Um, so at the workshop version of this, um, Sally Katzen asked me about this memo, uh, asked me to send it to her. I did. <laughs> She's obviously very capable of speaking for herself. Um, but I will say her concern um, at that time was very much to be the post, well, sort of the first democratic Elira, actually, and to be, uh, as she saw it at the time, much more uh, friendly to the agencies. Um, and that this was something in her view that they wanted, in fact, to have this drop because it would be embarrassing to show the, the back and forth and, you know, things like typos, but also things where the agency had lost, they might not want to expect that. So that's, that was her take at the time. Um, intrigued to hear the way that, uh, that played out in your experience. Chris? Sure. Uh, yeah, just a couple of um, comments. I, I, I like, uh, I take Susan's point about the question about principles. I think um, I, I, I ultimately, you know, the people are principles and they're operating through um, politicians, they're operating through regulators. But I think, and, and I certainly would say if I'm a regulated firm, I don't think of the regulators being my principal for sure. Um, I think that's pretty clear. But uh, I do think the uh, analogy still works as a general uh, general principle, but I, I take your point that there's uh, some nuance to that kind of direct principle agent problem. It's not um, setting up a mathematical model and solving a model. It's definitely much more nuanced. So it's a good point and something that we need to think about. Uh, the second thing about the information disclosure, um, uh, in some other kind of related work uh, that I'm doing with Terry Polonisi, we kind of argue that information disclosure is less of a device to provide information and more of a device to solve, well, as uh, information asymmetry and more of a device to solve externalities. And when it's thought of in that way, it relies on this third-party pressure, yeah. which is like your TRI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so that's kind of how we're thinking, but we do have to be more explicit because there's certainly a role in information disclosure in just simply providing information to the consumer purchasing. Um, at Lisa's point, I mean, uh, good points, and I'm not um, uh, here necessarily to, to um, defend benefit cost analysis. Is simply analyze, you know, when it could potentially play uh, a role. I would say, you know, some of the same criticisms. Uh, um, do we need benefit cost analysis? We could also kind of levy at uh, the notice of uh, notice and comment as well. Some of the same criticisms, whether or not it works as uh, a planning process or, or actually. Uh, engage an agency in the planning process. So I think maybe some of the same problems apply to both of them. Uh, and so do, having two, does that make things worse? Or does that make things better? I don't know. So that's something we have to definitely think about, but very good points, thanks. All right, Susan, if Chris is not here to defend benefit cost analysis. <laughs> Susan <sorry>. will. <laughs> well, maybe what I'll defend is OIRA review. 
And I just checked my watch because I didn't want to spend the remainder of our time <laughs> on something that Lisa and I can talk about separately. But um, one, just one quick point on, you know, it's not OIRA and the agency um, that as if they're just only two parties in that discussion, but there are a lot of agencies that OIRA is coordinating comments. Um, and one clear way, if the agency would like it public, what OIRA thinks is a return letter. OIRA can return a regulation. And in my experience, when there really were just at loggerheads with agencies, and usually there are many other agencies involved in that loggerheads issue. Um, I would say we would draft a return letter. I would share that with my counterpart at the agency. They were ready to return it. And a return letter is very explicit. It said, we're returning this because here are the parts of the executive order, Clinton's executive order that you did not, that your rule as drafted didn't meet. Almost universally, agencies would say, oh, never mind. Let's talk in your legs back and figure it out. But I do have two specific cases, and I'll try to do this very quickly. Because um, Lisa did mention that when things get elevated to the president, that happened once during my time. So it doesn't happen very often that um, decisions get elevated elevated all the way to the president. And in that case, and it was with EPA, um, where, each, where Lisa's experiences are from, um, the Federal Register notice stated that the administrator was taking this action because the president told him. So, um, but he, he didn't want to do it. He lost it when it got elevated and he, he put it in there. So this, and this notion about lying about the reason uh, Wendy Wagner's The Science Charade suggests that happens a lot. Get something through the courts. You have to, courts are less likely to challenge you if you say the science says we have to do a certain thing. And her notion of the science charade is that um, policy often, policy choices get masked, they masquerade as scientific um, data or facts um, because courts are more likely to defer. They, they won't touch that. Um, there was one case, this is my other story I want to tell, where, um, again, this was EPA, so both of my examples are from Lisa's agency. EPA sent a draft rule to OMB um, and then immediately leaked, leaked it because they wanted everybody to see any changes that were made from the draft that was submitted to OIRA and the draft that was public. And um, the other age, there were a dozen other agencies in the federal government that were very alarmed at the approach that EPA was taking in this draft. So instead of doing the normal process where the discussions are deliberative and there's back and forth, um, we said, all right, let's just publish that draft as it was submitted, but the preamble will also have letters written from all these other agencies expressing on the record what their concerns with that draft are. That was, I think that is exactly what you're asking for. It's very transparent. It said what the Small Business Administration, the Department of Agriculture, Interior, Energy, um, trade rep, what, what all of them thought, and that was there on the record. The fact is EPA hated that. EPA staff was very unhappy with that because they much preferred to have, they didn't like the idea that their draft was something separate from the government. So I'm sympathetic to Sally's explanation to Anne that um, this stuff works. And one more thing, you know, as um, the notion of semi-private conversations. When OIRA, and this is under Sally Katzen's executive order that's still in place, when OIRA meets with outside parties, it discloses who it meets with and if there's any material um, presented 
um, and left that that also gets scanned and posted on the website. Agencies can have meetings with outside parties while developing the regulation. There's no disclosure, no requirements for that. And I'll get back to Andy jokes about um, Don Elliott's comment that if you didn't have a wire, you'd have to invent it. Somebody in the White House is going to be reviewing agencies' regulations. And without those disclosure periods, you can be sure the people in the White House that have political motives, they're going to be meeting with outside parties and there won't be any disclosure. So I actually think the process is quite transparent, more transparent than almost any other part of the regulatory development process, short of the comment period itself. Boy, there's so much there. <laughs> you should have given just Lisa and me the podium for an hour and a Just one, just why is EPA so much the topic of discussion? I think it has been the subject of such loving attention from OIRA over the years, right? That it is often the center at the center of these arguments. And there's no maybe it's not a coincidence that all our environmental statutes were passed. At the same time, the centralized review in the White House really took off. So there's a way in which this process has been um, has been especially attuned to monitoring, scrutinizing, and sometimes rejecting environmental rules. Um, just on a, a, a bunch of the, the ideas, that even if an agency doesn't like transparency, you should have transparency, even if they don't like it. The whole this whole process is deeply intrusive in the agency's prerogatives and the notion that then the one thing the agency would get to say no to is to transparency about the process, that just seems strange to me. And especially when the executive order promises transparency and so a citizen or any outside person could be, uh, wouldn't be blamed really, I think, for looking at the executive order and thinking that's actually what this process promises us is some kind of transparency and it's not the agency's choice to limit that kind of transparency. On presidential elevation, boy, it seemed like things were getting elevated like, really? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Maybe not all the way to the president, past the agency head, sure, sure. And and I once, um, maybe I kind of knew this might not fly, maybe not. Anyway, I read the executive order and thought, huh, you know, you really are supposed to have a log about when uh, a matter gets elevated to the president and by whom and what happens. And so I developed a simple two sentence description of one of these elevation processes and thought to, I thought I'd put it in the administrative record and was told, absolutely not. Absolutely not. That is not, that's never been done. It will not be done. And so this idea, again, the, the, the gap, I think there's a problem, even the gap between what the executive order promises and what it does on a day-to-day -day basis. And the idea that that was just anathema to the process to actually say that the president or the president's top aides had intervened. That seems to me to just really undermine that accountability premise of this whole process on the climate and the arm that's what you're talking about right it's the climate endangerment finding. the endangerment finding the endangerment finding actually plus all of the possibilities for the agency to i don't think that was a really proud for the administration i am in favor of transparency but not so much when the the purpose appeared to be at least from the outside world and i'm, I'm sure that there's other different viewpoints about this but appeared to be on one very consequential matter to for that matter alone, the climate regulatory, the response to Massachusetts versus EPA, for that to be accompanied by 
all of the other agencies lining up against the EPA. And all the other actions weren't accompanied by that. That just felt a little bit like singling out. I think if it hadn't been leaked, the fact that it was leaked right away, I mean, that was it, that we weren't allowed to have that discussion mm. like that, that mm. happens in others. And so mm. that, I think. Mm. Mm. And also, one, one more thing about, so DHS is actually my tough state. So I think in the Obama administration, OIRA and EPA, they had mm. struggled the most. In mine, it was DHS and OIRA. Mm. Also, there are, obviously, there are a lot of agencies involved in a lot of these matters. There are a lot of rules that don't really attract that much attention from other agencies, attract a lot of attention from the particular desk office at OIRA who's always been worried about a particular kind of rule. And so, yes, there is a, this interagency process that is quite separate, maybe, from the cost-benefit stuff, but for many rules, um, the, the interagency, at least in my my experience, interagency presence was not that huge. And I'll just end on one note. This is old-fashioned of me, but you know, read the statutes on these matters, and they don't give authority. Not only do they not give authority to the president, for the most part, but they don't give authority over EPA rules to the United States Department of Agriculture and the United States Department of Energy and so forth, and there's a reason for that. And so that to give them an effective veto power in this process, it seems to me, really disrespects Congress's choice about who the agency is. I think one, uh, one quick historical comment uh, on EPA's uh, prominence in this process, that does go back to the Nixon administration. Yeah. Right? The Quality of Life Review, the original name for this under Nixon, was in language applicable across the government uh, to labor, to commerce, to everybody, but really was aimed at EPA and really only enforced against EPA. Yeah, and that's very nicely comes out of Nancy. Yeah, I also mention it in my recent journal of Extra Coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I happen to have a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I want to maybe just follow up on this question about Congress because it, it came up. Um, you know, oh, the story of Iowa's evolution is not one where Congress was a central player. But I did learn from, from Andy's paper that. Congress declined to reauthorize OIRA in 1990 as a way of, of using its leverage uh, to have a say in how OIRA's processes were going to work. Um, we obviously, Congress could, could make it go away if it was really uh, dead set on doing so by, by using its appropriation tools to do so. Um, I would just be really curious uh, if any of you have, have thoughts about uh, the, the the ways in which uh, Congress views the relationship between its its 1970s statutes like the Clean Air Act and and OIRA um, and and uh, and and whether Congress likes to leave OIRA alone largely because it likes the kind of influence that OIRA has. I think the fact that OIRA administrators always have a hard time getting confirmed, I mean, irregardless of party, or maybe not always, but often have a hard time getting confirmed, is because it doesn't, there's no constituency for it in Congress. You know, there would be a constituency for the head of EPA. And, but um, the other thing that's unrelated to that is that for the last several Congresses, there's been bipartisan legislation 
to codify the requirements of Executive Order 12866. So on the one side, there's been partisan legislation. On the other side, it has never passed. So I'm not sure what that tells us. <laughs> but you guys know more about the uh, record's interesting on some of the deals that were cut between various administrations and Congress, certainly, uh, to get OIRA authorized or at least not, uh, not murdered statutorily uh, in its sleep moving through. Uh, and most of these did have to do with trying to leverage more transparency. Um, you know, going back really to Wendy Graham, the Graham memo, 1986, for example. Um, and then some efforts by Dick Darman, uh, by the Bush administration with the director of OMB, um, in, uh, in some hints, at least, in the archival record of some uh, power play uh, uh, maneuverings between OMB and the White House Counsel's Office. At that time, the White House Counsel's Office won, actually. Um, so there's a, <clears throat> so a lot of it, though, is about, you know, in the Bush administration, the example you talk about, one of the interesting things is that a lot of the uh, political heat moved to the, the Quail Council, right? The Council on Competitiveness. And in fact, a lot of what was emphasized uh, by the president himself was that they were doing all the bad work, which actually left OIRA in a better place politically because it was seen as a, a careerist, uh, wound up serving as the acting director pretty much the whole administration. Um, the, as you say, the uh, uh, nominee was not confirmed. And so that actually gave OIRA sort of breathing space to. Uh, to make it through that particular crisis while congressional fire was trained on Dan Quayle and Michael Bostian and others in the administration. Um, then when the Clintons come in, right, they are, they're dealing with this for some time, and certainly there's some hope in the, uh, in the bureaucracy that Clinton will just say this is a bad Republican idea and get rid of it. Uh, and that clearly, pretty clearly, never on the table, uh, is, again, from the way that uh, Sally Katzen uh, describes that story, but it doesn't seem to have been a, a serious consideration. Uh, but the revision of the order, again, adding the uh, transparency mechanisms that have been mentioned, uh, certainly was part of that deal. And this winds up continuing as a matter of dispute into the Congressional Review Act uh, deliberations in 1996. Right? This keeps going. Uh, and that is actually a trade for your authorization again by the time we get to that point. Um, I'll throw one more question out and then turn to the audience after that. Um, my question goes back yet again to Don Elliott's pithy <laughs> comment. Um, if, if we didn't have it, we'd have to invent it. Um, is that true of cost-benefit analysis also? Uh, was, was the emergence of cost-benefit analysis an inevitable response to the complexity of regulatory decision-making environments? Is it just a way that is it what we call the, the centralized uh, governments demand that the agencies show their work, or is it something more substantively created than that? I'll turn to Lisa. <laughs> I think it's way more substantively created than that. I think that there's no, it's not a coincidence that cost-benefit analysis became the central principle of regulatory review really systematically with Ronald Reagan, who, of course, came into office promising less regulation, smaller government. I just don't think those two things were unrelated. Cost-benefit analysis has, has never been the friend of many types of regulation, in particular health, safety, and environmental regulation. And indeed, when it has started to become its friend, people have started to monkey with cost-benefit analysis to make sure that it doesn't continue to play that role. So for example, we see 
just this week, um, apparently a proposal has gone to the White House for review of um, the EPA's uh, proposal for modifying its approach to cost-benefit analysis, which as far as I can tell, consists, at, at least according to the account, in substantial part of um, reducing the benefits of environmental protection. For some time, environmental rules have passed the cost-benefit gauntlet largely because um, many environmental rules, particularly air pollution rules, reduce particulate matter. Particulate matter kills people. If you kill people in enough numbers, your rule will pass. And um, so that there have been very concerted efforts, and now EPA may be poised to accept this, that we simply pull out that category of benefit. So to me, cost-benefit analysis, and I know that this isn't a welcome message for you, but has been from the beginning a tool for saying no to regulation, a tool for uh, of, uh, the White House to clothe political judgments in technocratic garb. And I, I guess I'll just say, too, one of the most, to me, um, egregious components of cost-benefit analysis isn't even valuing life. Right? That, I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm tired over it, <laughs> you know? But to discount the future, Right. This sounds like the future basically exponential from the time when the harm would occur, uh, occur means that we systematically rule out rules that look to the future. To try to protect us in the future, the planet for the future, climate rules, forget about them if you apply the usual process of discount. Same thing with chemicals rules. Many times chemicals can take a long time to kill us. You discount them over the the benefits of the rules over the latency period, you will undo them. That strikes me as an enormous value judgment about the future, about the importance of the future, even the presence of the future in our regulatory policy that's made through this incredibly technocratic, really hard to understand device that would escape most people's notice. When people look at an RIA and they see discounting happening, they don't see it as, please erase future, the future, right? But that effectively is what it's really good at doing. So no, I, I, I think it's great. So I, not surprisingly, I, you know, I mean, so on economic grounds, I don't think that's right. But let me just move a little bit more. Um, I think if you don't do regulatory impact analysis, you're doing nothing but a value judgment without the support for the trade-offs and why you made that decision. Benefit-cost analysis is one component of regulatory impact analysis, and it is, which is a transparent accounting of what we know about the likely impacts of the different choices that we could take. And I think if you do not do that, then it's nothing but a political calculus um, and a value system. Certainly interesting. Cass Dunstein's metaphor is that it, it forces you to speak in a second language. Um, and in so doing, uh, justify yourself in ways that, that, that arise over your bias, as uh, Chris's paper talks about also. Um, okay, I'd like to give the audience a chance to ask questions uh, before we close. So please wait for the mic and please ask your question. Uh, gentleman in the center. Stuart Reuter. A couple of months ago, I recall reading a proposal that said any regulation coming out of an agency signed by lower level people 
not by somebody in a senior staff position, such as confirmed by the Senate, would be Ellen Boyd. Any follow-up on that that you've heard? I actually don't know the answer to that question in the present day. That was a concern of the Carter administration when they began to do uh, regulatory impact analysis. They were concerned that department heads were actually not tuning in to what was happening in the agency more widely, and they wanted to make sure there was explicit sign-off by political appointees as we move forward. So again, that's uh, yeah, this is uh, not a so new concern. So follow-up in so. the sense of what's happening with it, or uh, yeah, or, or yeah. is it valid? As our current understanding. Well, I, I think you could have such a principle. I think it'd be hard to manage. Um, I, I do wonder what the extent of the scrutiny that will be afforded to every single action, how much substance will actually um, occur. Public but yeah, I don't think. Regulations in public federal register should be have to sign off. Senior person. Yeah, I, I'm just saying I, I don't know how much review they'll actually do, and I don't see a legal problem directly. Yes. Jack Roberts, American University. I'm wondering, this is a sincere question, has anybody ever done a benefit-cost analysis of the OIRA review process? <laughs> and I'm thinking of, you know, the, the benefits would presumably, although this might seem great, would presumably be that it, it increases the cost-effectiveness of all the rules you Measure that, that would be a benefit. Um, but there's also costs, not not including, of course, the costs of all wire bureaucracy, but also the cost of delay of rules that have been um, measured to be beneficial by their their annual report. Shane made that that comment on whether um, President Obama should change the report is called sixty six. So has that been tried, and where can we see it? There, there have been several studies that have tried to look at because you know, it, it this needs to be being compared to what, and how do you know what the baseline would have been like if Hawaii wasn't there? So, some of the studies that I've seen on that are comparing the outcomes of um, regulations that independent agencies issue compared to the one the regulations that go through OIR, because independent regulatory agencies, as Andy said, don't go through OIR. And they found that as a rule, the, the analysis is better and the outcome can be better. You're actually doing some work on litigation. Is it related to that? Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's, it's more about the agency's organization and how that affects the profitability of litigation. But one literature that could potentially speak to that, to that question, just thinking about a political science literature, uh, looking at ossification, and the empirical work on ossification, uh, which is kind of suggestive that um, these procedures haven't really delayed significantly rulemaking, that rules are still happening and still happening at roughly the same pace. Uh, that's what it seems to have come up with. Now, there's questions about, you know, when do you, when can you start measuring when a regulation is being, being considered? And there's a whole process before that, that, that you know, an empirical researcher like myself can necessarily see, but um, but yeah, there there's not a strong amount of evidence. You know, OIRA review being one of the procedures that seems to really slow things down as much. So, for what it's worth. Yes, uh, Susan, you joked at the beginning of the panel about how dull the town title.
title was. Yeah. <laughs> you didn't realize it was actually an experiment to see how dull could I make the title, <laughs> but still fill the room with people who are interested in this panel. And I consider it a, uh, so thanks, Philip, and thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.